This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. There is a very urgent need to address the situation in Sudan because this war is about far more than only Sudan or the Northeast African region, but potentially becoming a continent-wide issue, if not global in its implications. Following the democratic movement leading the 2019 nonviolent overthrow of a long-standing military kleptocrat, President Omar al-Bashir, a military coup ensued, supported by outside forces. Now, one side is led by Abdel Fattah al-Buran, who commands the Sudan Armed Forces and has the support of most of what Sudanese call the Deep State, the network of crony capitalist companies entangled with the army, intelligence, and Islamist networks, as our guest today explains. The other side has, as its leader, Mohamed Hamedti Hamdan Dagolo, the leader of the paramilitary Rapid Support Forces, who, as today's guest also explains, sits atop a transnational conglomerate that includes gold mining and export, supply of mercenaries to neighboring countries and other business interests, including a partnership with Russia's Wagner Group. Yeah, that Wagner Group mercenary group from Russia that's been in the news lately when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Recent peace negotiations negotiations in Sudan collapsed, unlike the way the world came together back in 2011 to address another Sudanese civil war, despite that at the time the world was pretty distracted with the Syrian civil war, which was raging. But something needs to be done, and soon. Or, as, as Sudan's deposed prime minister, Abdallah Hamdak, recently said, Civil war in Sudan would make the conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and Lib Libya look like a small play. We'll discuss how another small play of region-wide destruction can be avoided in a few minutes when we have the return of Alex Duwal, who will be on to discuss his World Peace Foundation article, Sudan is tearing itself apart and Washington lost its capacity to help. The truth is that no one was doing the basics of multilateral diplomacy to prevent the bloody power struggle we're witnessing today. Alex is executive director of the World Peace Foundation and research professor at the Fletcher School of Global Affairs, Tufts University, and pro professorial fellow at the London School of Economics. Alex's latest book is 2017's Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine. He is also author of 2015's The Real Politics of the Horn of Africa. I'll explain while I was giggling in just a little bit. He initiated the UN Commission on HIV, AIDS, and Governance in Africa and was director of the AIDS Security in Conflict Initiative and was a senior advisor to the African Union high-level panel on Sudan and South Sudan. Alex was on the list of foreign policy's 100 most influential public intellectuals in 2008 and Atlantic's, Atlantic Monthly's 27 Brave Thinkers in 2009. He was on the show most recently back in 2015 to discuss his uh, the collection of essays, Advocacy in Conflict, Critical Perspectives on Transnational Activism. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how are you? Anything new in your life since we spoke a week ago? 
Um, I hit the Yerba Mate, mate a little bit too much last night. No, really? <laughs> yes, I was, couldn't sleep. Yeah, I was. You know, I was uh, had some work to do in the evening, and I kind of remembered it as like kind of green tea and strength. And um, after I had two cans, I looked at it up and. This particular one was like a cup of coffee, so I basically had two cups of coffee at nine o'clock at night. So yeah, if yeah, I, it's been interesting. If I drink uh, caffeine after four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm it really screws up my sleep a yeah. lot. Or like having sugars before you go to sleep. If you drink a beer like an hour and a half before you go to sleep, that'll keep you up too. So as for me, I'm. This is why I was giggling earlier. Uh, my face hasn't completely got back to the shape it's supposed to be in uh, as I'm still healing from falling flat on my face over the weekend and that's all I ever seem to be doing anymore recovering and recuperating from surgeries disease back pain accidents incidents but the thing I am sick of most is complaining and I'm really tired of this fat lip that I have which made me giggle because I couldn't speak right and i hope everybody bears with me today and for the next couple of days while i'm still healing uh but far more important than whatever is my most recent pain du jour dan please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience what intelligence will you be leaking on our discord what evidence will you be leaking on our discord the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the this is hell t-shirt the tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug the trucker's cap the winter beanie or toque if you prefer as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive Featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Dan, what is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff wonders if we're all Waco. <laughs> Are we all Waco? Yesterday I mentioned how listener Sam A. contacted us, writing, To my favorite podcast, what anesthetizes you against the terror of existence in the post-industrial climate emergency, neo-feudal, billionaire playground, meat grinder economy we live in? And how I mentioned yesterday how that, in a way, was exactly what I talked about during our May 4th Patreon podcast. But Sam also sent a correction. And for me, this one is one of the most embarrassing I've had on the show in quite a while. you got to remember, the show is recorded live. We do the show live. I don't have a computer in this room with me, so I can't look up stuff really quickly. So, Sam corrects me, stating that the S... In BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, as in Brazil, Russia, India, China. The S stands for South Africa, not what I accidentally said, which was Singapore. Which is believable, (laughs) but it's not Singapore. I knew it didn't sound right when I said it. The tone and producer Will Ippen's voice that day sounded like he was skeptical. I do not, again, have a computer in the booth, so I can't double-check anything I say. So that's my excuse. It's not a very good one, but that is my excuse. 
everyone, especially someone who is going to mention it on air, should know that BRICS stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, would start out just as BRIC, but added the South African S later, is a multilateral political group that works to promote peace, security, development, and cooperation between five leading economies. There's talk that both Japan and Mexico may join BRICS, which would make the acronym unpronounceable and would also be a major challenge to U.S. global economic and financial dominance. And get this, Bloomberg reported on April 24th, 19 countries expressed an interest in joining the BRICS group of nations as it prepares to hold an annual summit in South Africa. The emerging markets block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa will meet in Cape Town on June 2nd and 3rd to discuss its enlargement. Anil Suklal, South Africa's ambassador to the group, said in an interview in February, he was quoted saying that Saudi Arabia and Iran are among the countries who formally asked to join BRICS. Other countries that have expressed interest in joining include Argentina, the United Arab Emirates, Algeria, Egypt, Bahrain, and Indonesia, along with two nations from East Africa and one from West Africa, which Suklal didn't identify. At those meetings in June, they're expected to discuss launching a new BRICS currency. And as many as 24 countries have already been rumored to be willing to accept and adapt that currency. And while I am no capitalist, as you can tell by how little we do earn on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell, I do gamble. And as a gambler, BRICS currency looks like a way to definitely make some money. On the other hand, not very good at gambling either. We also got an email from Brian H. who writes, Hi Chuck, I really enjoyed the interview with Christopher Ketchum, but wanted to respond to a remark. Chris returned to the show last week at the request of listener Leo G. Thanks, Leo G. Chris was on to talk about the article Green Growth Delusion, which is part of his Truth Dig series. Brian says that I think I heard him say something along the lines, uh, we can't feed the world's population without industrialized agriculture. I'm not sure that's true. Here's one study that would seem to contradict that assertion. Brian then sends a link to an August 2020 article at the website of European Institute of Innovation and Technology titled, Can Regenerative Agriculture Replace Conventional Farming? As the Earth's population rises and the need for sustainable food production continues to grow, farmers and policymakers are taking an increasing interest in regenerative agriculture as a positive, adaptable approach to sustainable farming. Brian adds, if you want to interview someone who can talk about uh, the feasibility of feeding the world's population sans Monsanto, you should invite Vijay Kumar Thalam onto the show. Here's a bit of more info on him. He then gives a link to explain to us that Vijay uh, is executive vice chairman of the Indian nonprofit, uh, which focuses on organic uh, agriculture and an advisor on agriculture and cooperation in the state government of Adara, Adra uh, Pradesh. Brian, I also question Chris's remark that we need industrial agriculture to feed the world, but did not at that moment have access to evidence to challenge his opinion and statement. Uh, he also sees a problem with, Chris also sees a problem with uh, overpopulation, which I also questioned until he said it was not the only problem or the single most important problem, as many zero population growth people suggest. So yes, who argues that we, we got to have somebody on who can uh, you know tell us that we don't need Ag industrial agriculture. We need to have somebody on who 
discuss the concept of regenerative agriculture. And we really appreciate the uh, heads up, Brian. Truly appreciate it. You too can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com, via Facebook, where you can message us at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or DM us on Twitter at thisishellradio. And if you do, we will likely share whatever you write to us on air. Coming up, war in Sudan and what it means for the people of Sudan, the region, and the world. We'll have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. This is hell. Prove us wrong. Seriously, prove us wrong. Email me at chuck at com and tell me why this is not hell. And when considering the current and seemingly never-ending fighting in Sudan and the most recent failure of negotiations to end the nation's latest civil war, and throwing the lost hope of the peaceful democratic movement that uh, overthrew a kleptocrat, only leading to a civil war between two generals fueled by outsider support, it's easy to find a certain level of hell from which the Sudanese people have been suffering for far, far too long. Here to help us have a better understanding of what is happening in Sudan now, returning to the show, Alex Dewal is on to discuss the World Peace Foundation article, Sudan is tearing itself apart and Washington lost its capacity to help. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Alex. Thank you. And it's good to be uh, back with you. I hope one day we will have something a bit more cheerful to discuss. I seriously I, doubt that. I, <laughs> I have unfortunately uh, a lot of skepticism there. Yeah. And actually, I have I have one um, one item to add to 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 my resume that uh, that you missed which is a book that i published last year which is about the sudanese revolution it's called sudan's unfinished democracy the promise and betrayal of a people's revolution and actually the title was chosen before this crisis and in fact before the the coup of 18 months ago which led to this crisis because one can never be too pessimistic in Sudan. So even with this beautiful revolution of, of four years ago, it was a uh, sadly predictable outcome that the revolution would be betrayed. Again, that that's called Sudan's unfinished democracy. I apologize for that, Alex. That's no problem. It's actually co-authored with um, three others, a historian called Willow Barridge, a journalist called Justin Lynch, and a Sudanese activist called Ma- Raja Makawi. We'll get to that democratic uprising in just a moment, but you write that Sudan is tearing itself apart, and Washington is watching, seemingly unable to do anything to stop the carnage. America's diplomats lament that the U.S. has lost leverage. The truth is that no one is doing the basics of multilateral diplomacy, coordinate, coordinating disparate actors. Who are those disparate actors that you believe need to be coordinated? To what extent is Sudan guided by domestic forces? And how much is their past, present, and future guided by outsiders? Well, the sad thing about Sudan, um, or the peculiarly tragic thing about Sudan, is that no one wanted this war. Um, That this was a war engineered by these two generals and and their rivalry. But... um, Around Sudan, there's a, there's a ring of countries, e- each of which has its favorite. So some of them back uh, General Burhan, the um, head of the so-called Sudan Armed Forces, which is really only a plausible imitation of an army. It's not really an army, as it has shown in the last um, three weeks when it has been um, comprehensively outfought 
except in the matter of jet fighters by the paramilitaries. So we have, for example, Egypt um, that definitely supports uh, Al-Burhan. Al we have on the other side, we have the United Arab Emirates and we have the Libyan warlord General Khalifa Haftar who support his rival, uh, General Hemeti. General Hemeti is not a general in the sense of have someone who passed staff college and had all that formal training. His training has all been in the field. He's, he's as it were, a self-taught general, which is actually why he is, uh, is so ruthlessly efficient. And then um, there's a bunch of other countries that are uh, that are sort of poking their fingers in into Sudan so that the Saudi Arabia um, treats both generals equally, but um, doesn't want the Democrats in power. Israel cut a deal with General Burhan to recognize Israel in return for which the Israelis weighed in with the Trump administration saying, oh, time for you to lift uh, sanctions on Sudan. Turkey and Qatar both support the old guard of Islamists who were in power under the previous regime of General al-Bashir. Um, and they have sort of come in in support of, of al-Burhan. Uh, Eritrea on the eastern side is leans, it likes troublemakers. So he, and they see Hameti as their favorite troublemaker, um, et cetera. You can carry on actually around the entire rim of countries and say who who likes whom on who fears who and then you can go out a, a little bit further so that um, russia has stakes on both sides the notorious wagner group has a partnership commercial and military with uh, uh, hemeti and his rapid support forces the two have a lot in common they're both transnational military forces um that you could see them in principle getting into um, bed together to uh, work to run operations across the whole swathe of Africa as far as the West African uh, Atlantic coast, um, uh, with the Wagner Group bringing in its specialized skills and and um, which do not include desert fighting, um, and then the the RSF bringing in it, its specialized skills which do include desert fighting. Um, but then Russia also has interests on the other side. It wants a naval base in the Red Sea, and and it has interests in 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 the military industries in in Sudan, um, etc. You can carry on and on and on. I mean, the, what's what these countries have in common is actually they don't want Sudan burned to the ground, and you would think therefore that it would be relatively easy for the African Union or the United Nations to step up to the plate and say. Okay, let's just have have a, a common starting point is no war in Sudan. You can sort out your differences by other means, but neither the AU nor the UN has has um, found a way to do that. So is this a proxy war between Egypt and the UAE or between any other set of nations? Should we be looking at this as a proxy war? And if we should be looking at a, a proxy as a proxy war, how should that inform the way we view it? I don't think it, it didn't start as a proxy war. It was a sort of proxy dispute. But as I said, neither side wanted it or neither of the those who are sponsoring each side wanted it to become a war. And it's really the diplomatic ineptitude of the African Union and the United Nations and um, 
I would add the, the United States, that is allowing it to threaten to become a proxy war. So um, the fighting has been going on for three weeks. Uh, it has escalated. Um, it's become much more dangerous. And um, I fear that in the next three weeks, it will become a proxy war. You mentioned how uh, Sudan, uh, sorry, the Saudi Arabian government was opposed to the democratic movement that had overthrown uh, the former prime minister. Is uh, are there other nations that are opposed to democracy in Sudan, and what explains that opposition? Basically, all the Middle Eastern countries don't like democracy, and one of the one of the the, the reasons why the U.S. policy has been so bad is that the Trump administration essentially washed its hands of any proactive policy in Africa. I mean, we all know what um, how Trump described African countries. And in the case of the Horn of Africa, uh, that is um, Sudan, Ethiopia, Somalia, basically said to Israel, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, the UAE, um, this is your... Um, this is your place, um, will basically follow your lead. And those four countries essentially agree on one thing. They don't want a, a civilian democratic government in, in an Arabic-speaking country. Um, and Turkey and Qatar, which support the Islamists, like to say that they like democracy, but in reality, they only like democracy when it returns the people they like. So... Um, Sudanese Democrats haven't really had many active friends, and the United States, which speaks the language of democracy, didn't really step up to the plate and, and, and deliver what they needed. As you write, no one is doing the basics of multilateral diplomacy. Is it that nobody is interested? Does anyone care about Sudan? And more importantly, uh, do they care about the Sudanese people? What do you think keeps them from doing the basics of multilateral diplomacy? Um, I think people are actually quite scared about what this conflict entails. Um, the U.S. has had a policy under the Biden administration of um, stability. So it wants to promote stability in, in the region and in Sudan. But what does stability mean and what does it mean when those who are actually in power are creating instability um, because they are um, either in the case of sudan these two generals you know deadly rivals who will do anything to undermine one another or in the case of of um, Ethiopia, the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed wants to keep the country unstable because that's his the the easiest way for him to rule. Because should it be stable, then his deplorable record will be challenged. So there's a problem here that uh, U.S. policy saying, "Oh, we want stability," means we'll we'll stick with the guys in charge, which um, results in them actually. Um, taking that as, as, as a green light to do whatever they wanted. And when you have these two who had, these two generals in Sudan who had a proven record of being totally unreliable, uh, ruthless um, and corrupt, that was not a formula for, for <laughs> what the U.S. claimed its policy should be. So how do both generals benefit from the civil war continuing? 
Well, I don't think they do, actually. I think that they, um, each one um, thought that he would be able to land a killer blow on the other side. Now, I've, I've been involved in quite a few conflict prevention, conflict mediation exercises in Sudan over the years. And I know from my own experience that and these first days of a conflict, just before the conflict breaks out or when it has broken out, there's a sort of look in the eye of these generals. Their eyes are sort of, you know, their demeanor goes dead. It's as though our fate has taken over, as though they don't have any decision-making power themselves. They just say, war is coming. You know, it's going to happen. It's inevitable. But, and then they, this sort of anger, this sort of quiet anger, we can defeat the other guy. We can demolish them. We can destroy them. And then the situation is that in, in the early days of these conflicts, you know, one gets the upper hand over the other. And the one who is, as it were, lost the first round says, well, I'd be ready to talk peace, but only when I'm, you know, in an equal position, only when I have shown that I'm tough and that I've, you know, dealt a blow on the other side. And the other, and the guy who's, he thinks at least is winning says, well, why should I talk now? I've got the upper hand. I can, I, I can win. And it goes on like this. And it goes on until um, the country is destroyed, but also something else happens, which is that to maintain this level of fighting, you know, that level of combat, um, you know, with daily airstrikes, with, you know, massive battles, with enormous expenditure of ammunition, all the fuel required, all the resources required to sustain these armies, they get exhausted. They just don't have the, what, what, what's needed. So that's what, when, couple of things begin to happen. First of all, they turn to their external backers and they say to Egypt or the UAE or the Wagner Group or whoever, you know, just help us out. We can, you know, we can, we can win with your help. And then they turn to others in Sudan who are armed to the teeth, who have been staying on the sidelines, other armed groups. And then many of them, I won't give you the long and boring list, but these guys who are basically staying out of it to see who's going to win. And they'll say, well, we'll give you something if you join our side. And then, um, and, and in, in fact, some of those who are already on their side, some, some generals who are commanding um, units or whatever, say, well, in order for you to um, keep my loyalty, in order for me to stay with you, you're going to have to offer me something more or I'm going to go off and freelance. And then, and so the war drags in outside players and it becomes a war of all against all and then it's almost impossible to stop at that point it's no longer possible for you know either of the generals to to call an end because you know they have to have people who are literally out of out of control so it's actually not in their advantage but they out of habit and stupidity and and bravado they they um insist that they can win when they can't. But you're mentioning how they might have the perspective that they have no choice. How much do you think they have that perspective because of outsider influence, that they have been cornered and this is the only choice that they have? I think that will happen. Um, I don't think it has happened yet. Um, I think there is still a chance of them being um, coerced, essentially, into stopping it. 
uh, if if those key outside backers were to to uh, have a common front and say, um, yeah, you know, you may be our favourite, but you're not our favourite if you're going to destroy the country. To um, so each of the external backers would say that to um, to their their guy, but when the war becomes clearly unstoppable, then um, then it's a different story. You point out that two Sudanese warlords are intent on destroying one another and in the process are destroying the nation's capital, Khartoum. A city of more than 7 million people is wrecked by street fighting. The two rival armed forces, as we've been discussing, the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces, a paramilitary of comparable size and combat capacity, are battling for control. So two weeks after you posted your article, the New York Times ran a story with the headline, How U.S. Efforts to Guide Sudan to Democracy Ended in War. Critics say the Biden administration and its partners were naive about the intentions of two rival generals and failed to empower civilian leaders. The story began with this statement. Just weeks ago, American diplomats thought Sudan was on the verge of a breakthrough agreement that would advance its transition from military dictatorship to full fledged democracy, delivering on the soaring promise of the country's revolution in 2019. As your story was written just weeks before that Times piece, during street fighting in Khartoum, the nation's capital, did you believe at the time of your writing that Sudan was on the verge of an agreement leading to a transition from dictatorship to democracy, fulfilling the promise of the revolution? Did you have as much optimism as the New York Times apparently had? Um, I, I, no, I didn't. That's the short answer. I mean, the the whole experience of of Sudan over the last four years has been, you know, a sort of battle between pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the wealth. So short, you know, four years ago, after the this beautiful revolution, I was discussing with some of my friends, Sudanese friends, as to whether they should take a job in government. And we, you know, I said, I gave my analysis, and I said, this isn't going to end well. Do you want to be part of it, or you know, this isn't going to end well unless you get really solid guarantees, you know, from the Americans and others that you're going to get the financial and other support you need. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're heading for disaster. And they didn't get those assurances, but they went ahead. And I didn't want to tell, you know, publicly say to my friends, well, this thing is heading for a train wreck. You know, I wanted to wish them well. And similarly, you know, just the day before the fighting, I was on a panel with a, a, a friend of mine who's a, a Sudanese democracy activist about this issue. Is it going to explode? And before we went on the panel, I was going to say, well, I think it is going to explode. I mean, there is a, this unresolved question of how these two forces relate to each other. And this is being handled as a technical question. You know, we have all these technical military advisors saying, oh, the way to integrate you know, the rapid support forces into the regular army is to do A, B, and C, without really addressing the fact that whatever formula was adopted would have to decide, okay, who's going to answer to who? Who's going to be the top dog here? You know, is the are, are the paramilitaries going to be integrated under the army in a two-year time frame, in which case the army general, Al-Burhan, is on top, he calls the shots, literally, or is, you know, is it going to be a slow process of 10 years in which they have independent commands, in which case, you know, his rival, Hemeti, has the chance to maneuver. And if you, deciding that question, deciding who runs Sudan, is the question. It's not a question 
it's a political question and it's not a question that can be resolved by shuffling pieces of paper but my Sudanese colleague was optimistic she said I don't think this is going to happen it's going to come to blows I think they will they will work out a way of keeping the show on the road and right at the end I sort of said well fighting may break out either deliberately or accidentally in the next few days let's hope that it doesn't of course it did the next morning it it, it, it did but the, I just you know I just willed the optimism of let's let's see if this is going to work. I really hope this will work. It's 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 I didn't want to be the one that um you know dampened the the hopes of, of so many Sudanese. So when was the last time Sudan do you think, at least as an as an observer, when was the last time they had as much hope as they did in twenty nineteen? They I mean, before that you have to uh, go back to the immediate aftermath of the peace agreement in 2005 that ended the war between North and South Sudan. And that happened, um, that was a historic agreement. Unfortunately, it happened just at the time when the, the Darfur war was raging. And there was a hope at that moment that the Darfur war would be resolved. And uh, and therefore, all Sudan's key issues would be resolved at one time. It didn't work out like that. So there was a, a glimmer of hope then. Um, and you know, just in Sudan is like a jigsaw where the pieces never quite fit, to, fit together or don't fit together at the same time. And that's part of its tragedy. It keeps missing these opportunities for all the Sudanese to come together and solve their problems. So why did uh, the independence of Darfur not lead to peace in Sudan? That was what a lot of celebrities were telling us when I was looking through my past notes from interviews we did from the from the aughts, from the 2000s. I kept finding uh, guests that we had on the show who were talking about celebrities like George Clooney who were pushing for an independent Darfur, and that would lead to peace in Sudan, permanent and sustainable peace in Sudan. What was missed in that analysis? Well, I think the a lot of the celebrities were naive, if I may say so. I mean, in fact, it was South Sudan that became independent and not Darfur. But they were they were championing the rebels in Darfur and the former rebels in South Sudan. Um, and one of the problems that the that the, the the celebrities and the activists had was they they identified the source of evil. They they you know the the, the government in Khartoum, General Bashir, and the, his henchmen are evil and by implication they they their conclusion was okay anyone who opposes them must be good um and it's not as simple as that and 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 this is what we found out in in south sudan south sudan got its independence 2011 and the south sudanese celebrated okay we're free of these these tyrants and oppressors from khartoum well it turned out that they had their own tyrants and oppressors back home, which were the exactly the same people who'd been celebrated, not just by George Clooney, but also by many in the um, in the U.S. Um, policy world, by you know senior figures in the administration, in Congress, etc., who had basically seen these as the good guys. They also saw some of the um, the Darfurian rebels as the good guys, and it and. Um, it's not it's, that that is not a good way of of analyzing Sudan. That, uh, Sudan is a works as a system whereby those in power have um, 
are usually those with the money and the guns. And if you if you have accumulated both money and guns in Sudan, by definition, you're not a good guy. And and um, the uh, you know, the sad thing about the, the 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 peaceful revolution of four years ago was that it was accomplished without money, without guns. You know, strictly nonviolent women in the in leadership roles, etc. And the the rest of the world carried on business as usual. Okay, we will. Um, yeah, very nice for you to have that revolution, but we'll carry on dealing with those who, in our view, really hold the power, i.e., the generals. And it was a deep betrayal. We are speaking to Alex Duwal, who returns to this as hell to discuss the World Peace Foundation article, Sudan is Tearing Itself Apart, and Washington Lost Its Capacity to Help. Check out Alex's most recent book, Sudan's Unfinished Democracy. So um, you write of the fighting in Khartoum last month. It's a simple power struggle between two generals. Abdel Fattah al-Baran, uh, chairman of the Sovereignty Council and de facto president. He commands the Sudanese armed forces and has the support of what most of what uh, Sudanese call the deep state, the network of crony capitalist companies entangled with the army intelligence and Islamist networks. Does Baran and the uh, Sudan armed forces represent what might be considered the establishment, do, you, do they include the wealthiest and most powerful in Sudan? Because my bigger question, I guess, is what are the industries where the crony capitalist companies thrive? Yes, they do. Um, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that the, um, the army and, and those backing the army, who include many from the you know, intelligence agencies and, and, and the Islamist groups, they control a lot of the banks, the construction companies, um, a lot of agriculture. They had a lot of money in oil, though the big setback they had was when South Sudan became independent in 2011. They lost the oil. So they um, their biggest source of money was actually cut off from them. Um, on the other hand, um, Hameti and his rapid support forces have gold. So gold was discovered in large quantities in Darfur in, in, in 2012. So just after the, the regime of al-Bashir had lost its oil, suddenly it struck gold and, and couldn't believe it. And it thought, okay, this is wonderful. This will keep us going for a while. The problem was that while the, the oil and the other sort of sources of profit were all um, controlled by the sort of established businesses in and around Khartoum. The gold was in Darfur, and it was in shallow artisanal uh, mines where you you know local laborers, you know prospectors with just a you know a, a metal detector and a shovel and a pick, you know like like a sort of California gold rush type people would show up and start, you know, digging and every now and then one would find a nugget and there'd be a local gold rush. And whoever, and, and, and these happened in really remote mountainous and desert areas of, 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 of Western Sudan, which were completely lawless, the real wild west and controlled by different militia. And Hameti's path to riches and power led through these gold fields because what he did was he 
bit by bit, he state, he had a series of battles in which he overcame other militia, including one run by a notorious Janjaweed commander, Musa Hilal, that controlled the biggest gold field. And so bit by bit, his, his, his militiamen came to control the gold production and the gold trade. And, um, and, 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 and that's his, his power base. And, and, and the, the money that he got from exporting gold, selling gold to, to uh, Abu Dhabi in the Emirates, and then more recently to, to, to Russia in collaboration with the Wagner Group, has made him very, very wealthy. And, and, uh, he, and, 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 and therefore able to challenge these sort of establishment kleptocrats. So if you like, you can think of this as a gangland shootout. Um, whereby, um, you know, an old team of mobsters has been controlling the territory, and now you have an upstart mobster who's who, who who's managed to get a new source of you know lucrative lucre from uh, a new source, and and, and but who who wants to take over the most profitable um, neighborhood, and 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 the two are unable to agree on how to divide the territory and divide the ill-gotten gains and you know it came it's come down to a shootout so i know that this can often be an oversimplification so if it is please correct me is this a war for oil and gold is this a resource war or when we think of it as a resource war are we missing something else about the civil war within sudan um it it, it is it, it it's a it's a war over um profit it's a it's it, it it's a a war among rival kleptocrats over you know who's going to control the dwindling resources because sudan is in an economic crisis so all the things that used to make money are making less money and so um and 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 as those sources of money decline and diminish it doesn't mean that the appetites of 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 the gangsters diminish they they're still as greedy as ever so uh, if they can't share you know if they can't find an amicable way of 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 sharing it yes it is a war over over, over ill-gotten gains um but of course what they're going to find is is is, is that it's a war over the ruins the Times article I mentioned earlier also stated that Sudan had become an important test case in President Biden's core foreign policy goal of bolstering democracies worldwide, which in his view weakens corrupt leaders and allows nations to more capably stand as bulwarks against the influences of China, Russia, and other autocratic powers. Yet you write of the opposition to the corrupt crony capitalists entangled with the army intelligence and Islamist networks. Mohammed Hamedti Hamdan Dagalo is the leader of the paramilitary, as we said earlier, rapid support forces and sits atop a transnational conglomerate that includes gold mining and exports, supply of mercenaries to neighboring countries, and other business interests, including a partnership with Russia's Wagner Group. So is the Biden administration supporting the corrupt leaders the New York Times says he opposes, or is the administration supporting a regional supplier of mercenaries linked to the major Russian mercenary fighting force in Ukraine? Are these just two really bad choices for the Biden administration, and is there an alternative? Well, let's go back to what happened in, in 18 months ago, 19 months ago, because there's been a rocky transition 
with um, the the civilians supposedly in the lead, but the the generals really pulling the strings. And 18 months ago, two things were due to happen. Number one, General Burhan was due to step down as the head of the so-called Sovereignty Council, so he, which is like the pres collective presidency. So he would have handed over to a civilian to be the de facto president. And secondly, at the same time, a committee had been set up um, to investigate corruption and unearth you know, the dealings of what Sudanese called the deep state and dismantle these, the, the, these corrupt networks. And this was due to report. It had compiled a massive amount of evidence and, and, and which would expose you know, the entire military leadership and, and the rapid support forces leadership. And the then special envoy uh, uh, for the US to the Horn of Africa, Jeffrey Feltman, was in was in Khartoum. And there were all these rumors that the, the two generals were going to stage a joint coup to overthrow the, the, the civilian, to, to remove the civilian and, and preempt these two, um, these two steps that the generals agreed they didn't want. And uh, Ambassador Feltman met with them and they assured him, oh, no, we couldn't possibly do such a thing. He got on his plane. He flew to, I think it was, it was Doha in Qatar, got off the plane, opened his, his, his cell phone. And what did he see? They'd launched a coup. And he was absolutely furious. But he was instructed from Washington, no, we have to do business with the generals. A couple of months later, Feltman quit. Um, and this was the policy of stability. We stick with the guys who, who are in charge. Now, once those guys have shown that they are unreliable, that they will lie to your face in that way, and we know the reasons why they're lying to, to, to your face, why would you indulge them? Why would you continue to say, well, the, you know, these are the strong, capable leaders and, and, and so on? Why would you... Um, not immediately go after them? Why would you not impose, you know, individual targeted sanctions on them? And, and the State Department did none of those things. So de facto, it wasn't exactly supporting them. It was just sending a message. Well, we, um, you know, we talk about democracy, but if you overthrow it, we will, we won't do anything nasty um, to, uh, to you to, to stop you getting your own way. So, um, I think that was a, a huge failing, um, and 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 that was compounded by the fact that yes, there were there was a sort of a, a process of negotiation was then set in in motion to to to, to roll back that coup and reestablish a transition to 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 democracy, but it didn't get the high level attention that it needed. You know, you you know that when a key explosive issue like this question of who is going to be the top military dog, when that comes up, you need to have a diplomat on the ground who knows what he or she is doing, who can get on the phone to the Secretary of State or the President in, in Washington and, and get them to intervene. That used to be the case. That used to happen 10, 12 years ago, the, the US Special Envoy used to have almost daily interactions with the then Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And, and she would then, at the request, would then make the call. And others, you know, would make make the call, the um, 
the the Security Council would meet. None of this was happening. It was just devolved to the level of of some uh, bureaucrats um, at ambassadorial level in Khartoum to say, yes, we think everything is on track because the generals are telling us so. Well, that's not how you do this type of, of, of business. That was manifest incompetence. You mentioned earlier that uh, as part of the nego negotiation state that uh, the two years and the sides that are fighting would be integrated or 10 years to give Hamedi a chance at power. How difficult would it be to integrate the two warring sides? How much is such an integration wishful thinking? Can you simply put the Sudanese military back together again and lead to stability and security in Sudan? If you have an overall political deal, yes, you can. But if if you treat this as a technical question without an overall political deal, no, it's just a it's it's a recipe for a fight. And now it's going to be much more difficult because you you have this situation in which um, the two have been going at each other for weeks now um, with with an extraordinary ferocity, and the rapid support forces you know are they're entrenched absolutely in the middle of the national capital. They control the presidential palace. They control part of the army headquarters. They control three quarters of the residential neighborhoods. And the and um, and and the army, which has I think been militarily humiliated. If you can't hold your own, you know, Ministry of Defense. If you can't hold your own palace, then you know what does that tell you about the, the fighting capacity of the army? So, but they do control the air force. They and and so they are they are bombing relentlessly, and and thereby, um, they complain that the. RSF occupying hospitals and residential neighborhoods and you know government buildings. You know quite correctly the RSF shouldn't be there, but should the should the, should the government be destroying these? Um, you know in order to try and flush them out. It's going to be with the level of rancor and bitterness that just of these last three weeks. It's going to be extraordinarily difficult to get these. Uh, generals and their different institutions to, um, to coexist. It's, it's, it's a disaster. The way into trouble is easy. The way out is very, very difficult. So is the goal, in your opinion, by your estimation, as the Times seems to be stating, is the goal of the uh, Biden administration to empower that 2019 democratic movement that the soldiers thwarted? And are they doing anything to encourage that democratic movement to become rejuvenated? Is, uh, as the Times states, is the Biden administration and the previous Trump administration, were they focused on bringing democracy in any way? Is this a, a bipartisan situation in a way in that neither administration has really supported democracy in Sudan? Um, the Biden administration certainly supported it more rhetorically, but the the, the practical support has been has, has been pretty modest. Now, what the the U.S. at the moment is doing is very limited, but it's limited of necessity, which is that the um, the immediate priority has to be a pause in the fighting to for humanitarian purposes. I mean, we are seeing a humanitarian disaster of a magnitude I don't think we've seen anywhere. I mean, surpassing um, Afghanistan, surpassing Syria, um, surpassing Libya. Um, we haven't seen this scale of humanitarian crisis 
certainly in in my professional career which which spans 40 years of studying you know famine and, and starvation um and the reason why it's so bad is this which is that the most humanitarian crises are ones that don't knock out the essential infrastructure of an entire country they're ones where uh, that are confined to uh the provincial areas, outlying areas. Sometimes they come into the cities, but they're not all the cities everywhere. Um, there is still a, a, an element in which basic state infrastructure is kept intact. Now, in Sudan, we don't have that. We have already an economic crisis with a, about 13 million people already needing food aid out of a population of, of, of 45 million. Um, so that's... Um, nearly a third now that number has gone up in the last three weeks to over 16 million it's gone up by three million it's going to go up by another three million it's going to go up by about a million a week i think for the foreseeable future but the key point here being that it's not just people needing food you've actually the central bank has burnt the entire banking system has 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 ground to a halt in the next month farmers are going to be needing their tractors to plow land so they're going to need fuel they're going to need finance this is not peasant farmers you know with hoes these are big commercial farmers with tractors and combine harvesters um the the entire medical system relies on you know tertiary health care in, in 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 khartoum the entire employment system depends upon financial services now if the city of Khartoum, which is 7 million people and half the country's GDP, is, is deserted, the entire economy of the country collapses. And that means, uh, and, and if the country's middle class runs away, which it's doing now and shows up in Egypt and neighboring countries and in Europe, how will you rebuild it? How, how will you actually get basic commerce, basic services, hospitals, food systems, back functioning um it's it's going to be extraordinarily hard so what the the us and the saudis are doing at the moment is just trying to stop that decline that that slide and that that is essential um that has to be done and but the united nations is missing in action that's why i'm one of the reasons i say this is such a failure of diplomacy it's it's um the un is really nowhere to be seen and um one why what i would hope is that they can you know silence the guns allow a humanitarian pause and then um at least allow a little bit of normalization before you get back to politics um and hopefully that will be a democratic politics given that the these two mobsters have so discredited discredited um themselves through this uh, needless war well, so why is the Saudi or why is the United Nations? Uh, why are they absent in this situation? They certainly weren't uh, absent in negotiations that you were involved in, in back in 2011. It was one of the reasons that those negotiations were successful in Sudan. Why is the UN not involved now? Um, I think it's lack of leadership. I mean, they, part of the reason they give is 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 that they don't have leverage. Well, the UN never has leverage. The the UN has convening power and and the power to set an agenda to get everyone on the same page which should be possible given that no one wants this war another excuse they gave is that we're waiting for the africans well 
the African Union has basically abdicated responsibility. So you can't actually wait for a dysfunctional organization to get its act together. There is a basic um, um, irreducible responsibility on the UN Secretary General to act, even if um, some will be upset that he is acting. Um, so it, it's a failure of leadership and and and, and, I, and I'm deeply, deeply um, disappointed is, is, is too weak a word and what isn't being done. And as you just mentioned, there are now U.S.-Saudi talks taking place in Jeddah to come up with a plan for a ceasefire, if not peace, in Sudan. So in those negotiations, how involved are the Sudanese people? Uh, and what is the likelihood that whatever comes out of those talks will lead to a ceasefire, if not peace? If there isn't any, you know, commitment by the by the Sudanese people, are the Sudanese people involved in these negotiations, or again, is this is out is this outside powers determining the fate and future of Sudan? At the moment, it is um, each of the two generals has sent a, a three man uh, delegation, um, um, almost all military. I think there's one civilian advisor to the the the, the, the army side. Um, and yes, again, it seems that the that the that the future of Sudan is going to be settled by um, six men, probably five of them in uniform, sitting together with a, a Saudi and an American interlocutor, and the civilians nowhere to be seen. It's it's a it's very sad. Uh, the Times also quoted, as you did earlier, Jeffrey D. Feltman, uh, former U.S. envoy to the Horn of Africa who worked on negotiations for civilian rule, saying, if this fighting continues, there's going to be a great temptation among outside actors to say, if these guys are going to fight it to the death, we better get in there because we would rather have this guy or this institution win. The Times also quoted Sudan's deposed prime minister, Adala Hamdak, saying that the civil war in Sudan would make the conflicts in Syria, Yemen, and Libya look like a small play. So how inevitable do you think war is in Sudan? And do you think this could lead to a major war that includes larger outside interests? I I fear the worst. I fear um, I fear state collapse. I I think that the the war would not be a sort of large conventional war. It would more be um, a war of all against all, very widespread, perhaps not quite so intense, but I, a a war in which ordinary civilian life becomes impossible for most of the people of Sudan who will live in misery or, or, or flee abroad. I think it's it's I think that is frankly the most likely scenario. On that note, Alex, we have one last question for you. We've been speaking with Alex Dewal, who has returned to this as hell to discuss his World Peace Foundation article. Sudan is tearing itself apart and Washington lost its capacity to help. Check out Alex's most recent book, Sudan's Unfinished Democracy. And Alex, I just want to tell you, every time we have you on the show, it truly is a pleasure. You give us the unvarnished view of the world, and I truly appreciate that. Nonetheless, our final question for you is, as we do with all of our guests, what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. How much is the current conflict in Sudan? No, this is a huge question. The result of the legacy of colonialism. And I think more important here is what is missed when colonialism is not discussed in the current situation in Sudan. 
That's actually a very fascinating question because the city of Khartoum that celebrated its 200th anniversary two years ago was founded as a colonial frontier center, a sort of entrepot of, of imperial robbers and um, slavers, robbers, etc. And in a way, what this conflict is, is all those chickens coming home to roost. It's, it's as it one of the things you can see in what is happening now is these destitute, deprived, angry young people, young men from Sudan's peripheries who have seen this glittering city um, built um, by, depri by depriving them and their, their fathers and grandfathers of, of, of land and resources. And they're just coming to loot it. So yes, it is a legacy of colonialism too. So is this more than a war of inequality than a resource war? It, it, it is layered. It is layered. It's a, a, on the top level, it's a shootout between mobsters, but then the, 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 the foot soldiers are themselves motivated by the, motivated by the, the grievance of generations of, of, of deprivation. So yes, it's 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 a it's it's a war over um, the dwindling resources and the and, and 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 the false promises of of generations of 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 made by those greedy military leaders. Well, Alex, I really appreciate you being on the show in the past, and I look forward to having you on the show in the future. And I do not want to miss another book that you have put out. Again, Sudan's Unfinished Democracy is Alex DeWall's most recent book. And when you have a new book coming out, make sure you contact us. But most importantly, uh, expect more emails from me in the future to have you back on the show. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell if what you just heard from Alex and the hell that is the current Sudanese civil war and the hell that it might evolve into. Please show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by just visiting thisishell.com and clicking on the word support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how some of our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is... What intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? And I will be leaking the intelligence on our Discord of my gruesome face in the near future. But right now, you have to see that. You can only see that beyond our Patreon paywall. <laughs> Go yes. ahead. Um, on Patreon, um, we've got um, Old Grouch, who says... How to keep love alive with your partner in the time of civilization's collapse because of climate catastrophe, war, and general political stupidity. So damn glad I married someone smarter than me. <laughs> Did I write that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm not too uh, sure. Anyone? And, and uh, someone who remains anonymous. Yes. Uh, uh, Jamie Ke 
K says Soylent Green is people. <laughs> okay. And uh, on uh, Discord itself, we have a few remarks. Um, we've got um, the secret business practices of the ancient Chinese entrepreneur Sun Tzu. That's uh, who's that from? Uh, he j- just gives his last name, so okay. It's you. Well, I see, I see, I yeah, see. Um, um, and uh, Mark Sparks says George Soros's family goulash recipe. <laughs> I'd like to have that. That sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's democratic. <laughs> it's every taste it the exact same way because it's nice and equal. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Jeff Dorchin says the secret recipe for Chick-fil-A is the same as the secret recipe for Soylent Green. It is. With extra, but with extra babies. No, I thought it was going to be with extra salt. Yeah. (laughs) Any more? Um, and also from Kim G. Gray Matter. <laughs> All right, so we'll get to the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell tomorrow on tomorrow's show. The person with our favorite answer, of course, as always, to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at Chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, Dan, again, remind us what's Jeff's Moment of Truth about this week. Jeff wonders if we're all Waco. Waco. (laughs) Michael Shannon is, I always like shows that he's in. I don't necessarily, all right, I always like his acting. Uh, I don't necessarily like, always like the shows that he's in, but I saw, again, I saw a little bit of that Waco, that premiere. It looked pretty good. I'm also enjoying White House Plumbers, and I should not be endorsing anything on this show that doesn't give me any money, so I apologize for that. (laughs) It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On May 8th, 1970, 53 years ago this week, and just four days after the murder of four students by National Guardsmen at Kent State University, and thanks a lot, Ronaldo, like I'm going to be able to make wisecracks about this. Sheesh. Again, just four days after the murder of four students by National Guardsmen at Kent State University during an anti-war demonstration there, peace marchers gathered in New York City for another protest against the Nixon administration expansion of the Vietnam War into the neighboring country of Cambodia. And you might be wondering, why don't I remember? Don't remember reading about peace marchers gathering in New York City shortly after the protests at Kent State University, the deadly protests at Kent State University. Well, these have been kind of erased from history, and for a good reason. Hundreds of nonviolent demonstrators, mostly college students, moved through the streets of Lower Manhattan, chanting anti-war slogans. They were soon attacked by a column of 200 flag-waving, that's USA, USA, flag-waving construction workers, many wearing work helmets who surged through the crowd, shouting slogans in favor of the war and the Nixon administration while denouncing New York Mayor 
John Lindsay, a liberal Republican who had opposed the U.S. military presence in Vietnam and had ordered flags on city buildings lowered to half-staff to honor the students killed at Kent State University. And I can understand why that would be very upsetting. Students, unarmed students being killed by National Guardsmen. I mean, and then lowering the flags to half-staff in New York City? That will not stand. Jesus Christ, how inhumane were these people? And we talked with somebody about this on the show back in the day, but for the life of me, I cannot remember when it took place or who the guest was, and I was looking through the archives for a long time yesterday. Anyway, as the construction workers moved through the crowd of peaceful demonstrators, peaceful peace demonstrators, the workers began punching, kicking, and slamming them with their hard hats injuring more than 70 people while police stood by and did next to nothing because the police have a long history of supporting the far right and hating the left. In this event, many refer to as the day that labor became Republican. For the next two weeks, similar displays of pro-war sentiment would bring areas of New York City to a periodic standstill. But you never hear about that. It's always about the war protesters. They are the ones who are getting in the way of traffic. It's never those far-right pro-war people. These demonstrations would grow in size and intensity until May 20th, when some 200,000 people marched down Broadway waving flags, 200,000, and singing patriotic songs in praise of U.S. support of the corrupt puppet government in South Vietnam. And this is before Fox News. 200,000 people marching down the street in support of a war they were lied into that supports a corrupt puppet government in South Vietnam and a government that was directly lying to them on a regular basis and ended up having to have a president resign because he was behind a burglary. That's what 200,000 Americans marching with flags were supporting. If that's patriotic, I, I guess I don't understand what that means. It would soon emerge that these so-called hard hat riots portrayed at first as spontaneous and those spontaneous right-wing marches are never, ever spontaneous, and they're always packaged as spontaneous by the media. They were actually orchestrated by the local construction trades union, just like the uh, Tea Party movement was actually supported by a very big political action committee. Peter J. Brennan, the union president and a pro-war Nixon supporter, had realized that his overwhelmingly white rank-and-file members, who had traditionally voted Democratic, were now alienated by the anti-war counterculture and the movement toward affirmative action in hiring. They were ready to start voting Republican, and Nixon would eventually reward Brennan for his support by making him Secretary of Labor. Though not all unions in the U.S. would follow the New York construction workers' lead, the hard-hat riots nonetheless heralded a historic shift in political alignment in the United States, launching a trend that in time would lead to the election of Presidents Reagan, Bush, and finally Trump, in case you are keeping score at home. Labor unions left the Democratic Party for the Republicans because they were for 
the illegal war in Vietnam, which history has proven was completely unnecessary, and we are lied into and throughout. And these same workers were against affirmative action, a.k.a. supportive of white supremacy and racism and privilege. And looking at the score sheet, these so-called Reagan Democrats were really, really wrong on every count, and none of them were ever held accountable. Now that's really, really rotten history, and this is hell. Dan, who's coming up as our next guest here on This Is Hell? We will be having writer and publisher Charlotte Chain, who wrote the N Plus One article three times, The Pregnancy Was the Crisis, Not the Abortion. Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled Prostitute Laundry. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. So on Patreon, in a post titled, How Was Your Weekend? Trigger warning, I shared a pretty gruesome picture of my face that was taken the morning after I fell flat on my face on our tiled bathroom floor back over at my place. And as our Patreon patrons are so concerned and so supportive, I thought I would share what they are saying, how they are commenting on this gruesome picture that you can only see by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And uh, it's a pretty gross picture. It really looks like it just got slashed in the face in a hockey game. And I have been slashed in the face in a hockey game, which is why my nose is a little bit crooked. Uh, Greg G. asks, So, how does the other guy look? Well, he's got my blood all over him. And to be honest, I'm not sure we've mopped it up yet. So the other guy being the tile floor, yeah, he's bloody too. Steve S. is very considerate, said, Oh no, hugs, man. Thank you, Steve S. I really appreciate the hugs. Philippe C., who shares kind words, says, Oh no, bro, get better. I spent my weekend with my mother celebrating Victory Day. So I'm not sure which Victory Day Felipe was celebrating. Victory Day for the Soviets defeating the Nazis is May 9th. It can't be that. So I don't know, maybe Cinco de Mayo. Felipe, if you're listening, please tell us what Victory Day you were celebrating. Mike the Giga Grouch reacts with, Damn, Chuck. You're correct, Mike. That is exactly what happened at some point along the way. I was damned. Damn these eyes. It's too late. They already were. Christina sends her well wishes. So sorry, Chuck. Do you need some ice? I do, but I'm not certain how we can make out such an exchange. So I'm not too sure how you can deliver that ice to me. I don't want dry ice. That's for sure that it just burned my face. So. Yeah, let's work it out, Christina. And finally, from Fergus Z, I don't know how that happened, but it looks sore. Hope you're okay, man. See? I told you our Patreon patrons are a very concerned and supportive bunch. But still, this is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. 
For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>